24. Dull. Heavy pain is more persistent, and is present in congestions, or when the substance of an organ is inflamed, and it often precedes hemorrhage. Burning pain characterizes violent inflammations involving the skin and subjacent cellular tissue, as in case of boils and carbuncles. Deep, perforating pain accompanies inflammation of the bones, or of their enveloping membranes. Gnawing, biting, lancing adding pain attends cancers. The location of pain is not always at the seat of the disease. In hip disease, the pain is not first felt in the hip, but in the knee joint. In chronic inflammation of the liver, the pain is generally most severe in the right shoulder and arm. Disease of the kidneys occasionally produces numbness of the thigh and drawing up of the testicle, and commonly causes colicky pains. Inflammation of the meninges of the brain is often indicated by nausea and vomiting before attention is directed to the head. These illustrations are sufficient to show that pain often takes place in some part remote from the disease, in chronic, abdominal affections, rheumatic fevers, gout, and syphilis. The entire system is thrown into a morbid state, the nervous system is disturbed, and wandering pains manifest themselves in different parts of the body. Fixed pain, which is increased by pressure, indicates inflammation. If it be due only to irritation, pressure will not increase it. Some rheumatic affections and neuralgia not only bear pressure, but the pain diminishes under it. Permanent pain shows that the structures of an organ are inflamed, while intermittent pain is a sign of neuralgia, gout, or rheumatism. Absence of pain in any disease, where ordinarily it should be present, is an unfavorable sign. Internal pain, after a favorable crisis, is a bad omen, or, if pain cease suddenly without the other symptoms abating, the import is bad. If However, pain and fever remit simultaneously and the secretions continue. It is a favorable sign. A dull pain in the head indicates fullness of the blood vessels from weakness, low blood, or general debility. It may be caused by taking cold, thus producing passive congestion of the brain. It may proceed from gastric disturbance, constipation of the bowels, or derangement of the liver. Heaviness of the head sometimes precedes inflammation of the brain, or chronic disease of its membranes. A dull, oppressive pain in the head indicates softening of the brain, and is generally accompanied by slowness of the pulse and of the speech. A pulsating pain of the head occurs in heart disease, hysteria, and frequently accompanies some forms of insanity. The eye indicates morbid changes and furnishes unmistakable signs of disease. Sinking of the eye indicates waste, as in consumption, diarrhea, and cholera. In fevers it is regarded as a fatal symptom, a dark or leaden circle around the eye seen after hard work, indicates fatigue and overdoing, if the mucus covering of the inner surface of the lids and the ball of the eye is congested and inflamed, it exhibits redness, and may indicate congestion or even inflammation of the brain, a dilated pupil is often observed in pictorial consumption, congestion of the brain, low fevers, and chlorosis, the pupil contracts an inflammation of the meninges, when there is increased sensibility and intolerance of light, also in spinal complaints, in some diseases the luster of the eye increases, as in consumption, but if it decreases with the attack of violent disease, it indicates great debility and prostration. Examination of the urine. All medical authors and physicians of education, freely admit and even insist upon the importance of critically examining the patient's urine, in all cases in which there is reason to suspect disease of the kidneys or bladder. In chronic affections it is particularly serviceable, especially in derangements of the liver blood, kidneys, bladder, prostate gland, and nervous system. 
Many scholarly physicians have sadly neglected the proper inspection of the urine, because they were afraid of being classed with the illiterate, Euroscopian, doctors, or fanatical enthusiasts, who ignorantly pretend to diagnose correctly all diseases in this manner, thus subjecting themselves and their claims to a ridicule. Nothing should deter one from giving to this excretion the attention it deserves. The urine which is voided when the system is deranged or diseased is altered in its color and composition, showing that its ingredients vary greatly. So important an egg do examinations of the urine furnish in diagnosing many chronic ailments, that at the Invalids Hotel and Surgical Institute, where many thousands of cases are annually treated, a chemical laboratory has been fitted up, and a skillful chemist is employed, who makes a specialty of examining the urine, both chemically and microscopically and reporting the result to the attending physicians. His extended experience renders his services invaluable. With his assistance, maladies which had hitherto baffled all efforts put forth to determine their true character, have frequently been quickly and unmistakably disclosed. In my CROSCOPICAL examination, this method of examination affords a quicker and more correct idea of a deposit or deposits than any other method. The expert, by simply looking at a specimen, can determine the character of the urine, whether blood, mucus, pus, uric acid, etc. are present or not, but when no deposit is present, then it is necessary to apply chemical tests, and in many cases the quantity of the suspected ingredient must be determined by analysis, as a detailed account, of the various modifications which the urine undergoes in different diseases, would be of no practical use to the masses since they could not avail themselves of the advantages which it would afford for correct diagnosis, except by the employment of a physician who does not ignore this aid in examining his patients. We shall omit all further details upon the subject, for the same reason we shall not often, in treating of the different diseases in which examinations of the urine furnish such valuable aid in forming a diagnosis, make mention of the changes which are likely to have occurred. Inflammation the term inflammation signifies a state in which the infected part is hotter, redder, more congested, and more painful than is natural. Inflammation is limited to certain parts, while fever influences the system generally. Inflammation gives rise to new formations, morbid products, and lesions, or alterations of structure. The morbid products of fever, and its modification of fluids are carried away by the secretions and excretions. The susceptibility of the body to inflammation may be natural or acquired. It is natural when it is constitutional, that island when there is an original tendency of the animal economy to manifest itself in some form of inflammation. We may notice that some children are far more subject to boils, croups, and erysipelatous diseases than others. This susceptibility, when innate, may be lessened by careful medication, although it may never be wholly eradicated, when acquired. It is the result of the influence of habits of life, climate, and the state of mind over the constitution phlegmonous inflammation is the active inflammation of the cellular membrane, one illustration of which is a common boil. The four principal symptoms are redness, swelling, heat, and pain, and then appears a conical, hard, circumscribed tumor, having its seat in the dermoid texture. At the end of an indefinite period, it becomes plant, white or yellow and discharges pus mixed with blood, when it breaks, a small, grayish, fibrous mass sometimes appears, which consists of dead, cellular tissue, and which is called the core, there are certain morbid states of the constitution which lead to a local inflammation, subsequent upon slight injury, or, in some cases, without any such provocation, as in gout, 
rheumatism, and scrofula. One of the first results of the inflammation, in such cases, is a weakening of the forces which distribute the blood to the surface and extremities of the body. It is generally admitted that in scrofulous persons the vascular system is weak, the vessels are small, and because nutrition is faulty, the blood is imperfectly organized. The result is failure in the system, for if nutrition fails, there may be lacking earthy matter for the bones, or the unctuous secretions of the skin, the sebaceous secretion is albuminous and liable to become dry, producing inflammation of the parts which it ought to protect. Disorder of the alimentary canal and other mucous surfaces are sometimes reflected upon the skin. We have occasionally observed cutaneous eruptions and erysipelas, when evidently they were distinct signs of internal disorder. Inflammation may be internal as well as external, as inflammation of the brain, lungs, or stomach, and it is frequently the result of what is called a cold. No matter how the body is chilled, the blood retreats from the surface, which becomes pale and shrunken. There is also nervous uneasiness, and frequently a rigor, accompanied with chattering of the teeth. After the cold stage, reaction takes place and fever follows. The sudden change from a dry and heated room to a cool and moist atmosphere is liable to induce a cold. Riding in a carriage until the body is shivering, or sitting in a draft of air when one has been previously heated, or breathing a very cold air during the night when the body is warm, especially when not accustomed to doing so, or exposing the body to a low temperature when insufficiently clothed, are all different ways of producing inflammation. Inflammation may result in consequence of local injury, caused by a bruise, or by a sharp, cutting instrument, as a knife or an axe, or it may be caused by the puncture of a pin, penknife blade or a forked tine, or from a lacerated wound, as from the bite of a dog, or from a very minute wound poisoned by the bite of a venomous rectal. Local inflammations may arise from scalds, burns, the application of caustics, arsenic, corrosive sublimate, cantharides, powerful acids, abrasions of the surface by injuries, and from the occurrence of accidents, the swelling of the part may be caused by an increase of the quantity of blood in the vessels, the effusion of serum and coagulating lymph, and the interruption of absorption by the injury, or by the altered condition of the inflamed part. The character of the pain depends upon the tissue involved, and upon the altered or unnatural state of the nerves. Ordinarily, tendon, ligament, cartilage, and bone are not very sensitive, but when inflamed they are exquisitely so. The heat of the inflamed part is not so great, when measured by the thermometer, as might be supposed from the patient's sensations. Termination of inflammation. Inflammation ends in one of six different ways. Inflammation may terminate in resolution, i.e. spontaneous recovery, by suppuration, in the formation of matter, by effusion, as the inflammation caused by a blister plaster terminates by effusion of water, by adhesion, the part inflamed forming an attachment to some other part, by induration, hardening of the organ, or by gangrene, that island death of the part, thus, inflammation of the lungs may terminate by recovery, that island by resolution, by suppuration and raising of matter, by hardening and solidification of the lung, or by gangrene, inflammation of the endocardium, the lining membrane of the heart, may cause a thickening of it, and ossification of the valves of the heart, thus impairing its function, inflammation of the pericardium may terminate in effusion, or dropsy, and inflammation of the liver may result in hardening and adhesion to adjacent parts, several principles for treatment of inflammation, remove the exciting causes as far as practicable, if caused by a splinter or any foreign substance, it should be withdrawn, 
and if the injury is nearly local, apply cold water to the parts to subdue the inflammation. If caused by a rabid animal, the wound should be enlarged and cut, and the parts cleansed or destroyed by caustic. The patient should remain quiet and not be disturbed. The use of tincture of aconite internally will be found excellent to prevent the rise of inflammation. A purgative is also advised, and four or five of drive pierces pleasant purgative pellets will be sufficient to act upon the bowels. If there is pain, an anodyne and diaphoretic is proper. Dr. Pierce's compound extract of smart weed will fulfill this indication. In local inflammation cold water is a good remedy, yet sometimes hot water, or cloths run out of it, will be found to be the appropriate application. When the inflammation is located in an organ within a cavity, as the lungs, hot fomentations will be of great service. Bathing the surface with alkaline water must not be omitted. Whenever the inflammation is serious the family physician should be early summoned. Fever. In fever all the functions are more or less deranged. In every considerable inflammation there is sympathetic fever. But in essential fevers there are generally fewer lesions of structure than in inflammation. Fever occasions great waste of the tissues of the body. And the refused matter is carried away by the organs of secretion and excretion. The heat of the body in fever is generally diffused. The pulse is quicker. There is dullness, lassitude, chilliness, and disinclination to take food. We propose to give only a general outline of fevers, enough to indicate the principles which should be observed in domestic treatment. Most fevers are distinctly marked by four stages. First, the forming stage, 2D, the cold stage, 3D, the hot stage, 4th, the sweating or declining stage. During the first stage the individual is hardly conscious of being ill, for the attack is so slight that it is hardly perceptible. True, as it progresses, there is a feeling of languor an indisposition to make any bodily or mental effort, and also a sense of soreness of the muscles, aching of the bones, chilliness, and a disposition to get near the fire. There is restlessness, disturbed sleep, bad dreams, lowness of spirits, all of which are characteristic of the formative stage of fever. The next is the cold stage, when there is a decided manifestation of the disease, and the patient acknowledges that he is really sick. In typhus and typhoid fever the chills are slight, in other fevers they are more marked, while in ague they are often accompanied by uncontrollable shaking. When the chill is not so distinct the nails look blue and the skin appears shriveled. The eye is sunken and a dark circle circumscribes it. The lips are blue, and there is pain in the back. The pulse is frequent, small, and depressed. The capillary circulation feeble, the respiration increased, and there may be nausea and vomiting. These symptoms vary in duration from a few minutes to more than an hour. They gradually abate. Reaction takes place, and the patient begins to throw off the bedclothes. Then follows the hot stage, for with the return of the circulation of the blood to the surface of the body, there is greater warmth, freer breathing, and a more comfortable and quiet condition of the system. The veins fill with blood, the countenance brightens, the cheeks are flushed, the intellect is more sprightly, and if the pulse is frequent, it is a good sign, if it sinks, it indicates feeble, vital force, and is not a good symptom. If there is considerable determination of blood to the head it becomes hot. The arteries of the neck pulsate strongly, and delirium may be expected. During the hot stage, if the fever runs high, the patient becomes restless, frequently changes his position, is wakeful, uneasy, and complains of pain in his limbs. In low grades, the sensibility is blunted, smell, taste and hearing are impaired, the patient in the hot stage is generally thirsty, 
and if he is allowed to drink much, it may result in nausea and vomiting. Moderate indulgence in water, however, is permissible. There is aversion to food, and if any is eaten, it remains indigest. The teeth are sometimes covered with dark swords foul accumulations early in the fever, and the appearance of the tongue varies, sometimes being coated a yellowish-brown, sometimes red and dry, at other times thickly coated and white. The condition of the bowels varies from constipation to diarrhea, although sometimes they are quite regular. The urine is generally diminished in quantity, but shows higher color. The sweating stage in some fevers is very marked, while in others there is very little moisture but an evident decline of the hot stage, the skin becoming more natural and soft, the pulse is more compressible and less frequent, the kidneys act freely, respiration is natural, the pains subside, although there remains languor, lassitude, and weariness, a preternatural sensibility to cold, an easily excited pulse, and a pale and sickly aspect of the countenance, the appetite has failed and the powers of digestion are still impaired, domestic management of fevers, It is proper to make a thorough study of the early, insidious symptoms of fever, in order to understand what ought to be done. If it arises in consequence of malaria, the treatment must be sweet to the case. If from irritation of the bowels and improper articles of diet, then a mild cathartic is required. If there is much inflammation, a severe chill, and strong reaction, then the treatment should be active. If the fever is of the congestive variety and the constitution is feeble, the reaction imperfect a small, weak pulse, a tendency to fainting, a pale countenance, and great pain in the head, apply heat and administer diaphoretics, and procure the services of a good physician, as a general rule, it is proper to administer a cathartic, unless in typhoid fever, and for this drive pierces purgative pellets answer the purpose, given in doses of from 4 to 6, according to the state of the bowels, if these are not at hand, a tea of sage and senna may be drunk until it produces a purgative effect, or a dose of rochelle salts taken. In nearly all fevers we have found that a weak, alkaline tea, made from the white ashes of hickory or maple wood, is full, taken weak, three or four times daily, or if there be considerable thirst, more frequently, some patients desire lemon juice, which enters the system as an alkali and answers all purposes. Diaphoretic medicines are also indicated and the use of drive pierces extract of smart weed will prove very serviceable. Drinking freely of pleurisy root tea, or of a strong decoction of bones that is frequently full, after free sweating has been established, then it is proper to follow by the use of diuretic teas, such as that of spearmint and pumpkin seed combined, or sweet spirits of nitre, in doses of 20 to 30 drops, added to a teaspoonful of the extract of smart weed, diluted with sweetened water, to lessen the frequency of the pulse, fluid extract or tincture of aconite or veritrum may be given in water, every hour, during the intermission of symptoms, tonic medicines and a sustaining course of treatment should be employed, if the tongue is loaded and the evacuations from the bowels are fetid, a solution of sulfite of soda is proper, or, take equal parts of brewer's yeast and water, mix, and when the yeast settles, give a tablespoonful of the water every hour, as an antiseptic, Administering a warm, alkaline hand bath to a fever patient every day, is an excellent febrifuge remedy, being careful not to chill or induce fatigue, if there is pain in the head, apply mustard to the feet, if it is in the side, apply hot fomentations, the symptoms which indicate danger are a tumid and hard abdomen, difficult breathing, offensive and profuse diarrhea, bloody urine, delirium, or insensibility. 
Favorable symptoms are a natural and soft state of the skin, eruptions on the surface, a natural expression of the countenance, moist tongue, free action of the kidneys, and regular sleep. If the domestic treatment which we have advised does not break the force of the disease and mitigate the urgency of the symptoms, it will be safer to employ a good physician, who will prescribe such a course of treatment as the case specially requires. It is our aim to indicate what may be done before the physician is called, for frequently his services cannot be obtained when they are most needed. Besides, if these attacks are early and properly treated with domestic remedies, it will often obviate the necessity of calling upon a physician. If, on the other hand, fevers are neglected and no treatment instituted, they become more serious in character and are more difficult to cure. To recapitulate, our treatment recommends evacuation through nature's outlets, the skin, kidneys, and bowels, maintaining warmth, neutralizing acidity, using antiseptics, tonics, and the hand bath, and the fluid extract or tincture of aconite, or veritrum to moderate the pulse by controlling the accelerated and unequal circulation of the blood. It is a simple treatment, but if judiciously followed, it will often abort a fever, or materially modify its intensity and shorten its course. Fever and ague. Intermittent fever. The description of fever already given applies well to this form of it. Only the symptoms in the former stage are rather more distinct than in the other varieties. Weariness, lassitude, yawning, and stretching. A bitter taste in the mouth. Nausea, less of appetite. The uneasy state of the stomach and bowels are more marked in the premonitory stages of intermittent fevers. The cold stage commences with a chilliness of the extremities and back. The skin looks pale and shriveled. The blood recedes from the surface. Respiration is hurried. The urine is limpid and pale. Sometimes there is nausea and vomiting. And towards the conclusion of the stage, the chilly sensations are varied with flushes of heat. The hot stage is distinguished by the heat and dryness of the surface of the body and the redness of the face. There is great thirst. Strong, full, and hard pulse free and hurried respiration and increased pain in the head and back. The sweating stage commences by perspiration appearing upon the forehead, which slowly extends over the whole body, and soon there is an evident intermission of all the symptoms. In the inflammatory variety of intermittent fever, all these symptoms are acute, short, and characterized by strong reaction. Gastric fever, the most frequent variety of intermittent fever, is marked by irritation of the stomach and bowels and a yellow appearance of the white of the eye, causes, the cause of the malarial fevers, intermittent, remittent, and congestive, is supposed to be miasm, a poisonous, gaseous exhalation from decaying vegetation, which is generally most abundant in swamps and marshes, and which is absorbed into the system through the lungs, treatment, during the entire paroxysm the patient should be kept in bed, and in the cold stage, covered with blankets and surrounded with bottles of hot water, the compound extract of smart wheat should be administered in some diaphoretic herb tea. During the hot stage, the extra clothing and the bottles of hot water should be gradually removed and cold drinks taken instead of warm. During the sweating stage the patient should be left alone, but as soon as the perspiration ceases, from two to four of the purgative pellets should be administered. As a gentle cathartic, a second paroxysm should, if possible, be prevented. To accomplish this, during the intermission of symptoms, the golden medical discovery should be taken in doses of from 2 to 3 teaspoonfuls every 4 hours in alternation with 3 grain doses of the sulfate of quinine. If the attack is very severe, and is not relieved by this treatment, a physician should be summoned to attend the case. Remittent fever, bilious fever, 
The distinction between intermittent and remittent fever does not consist in a difference of origin. In the former disease there is a complete intermission of the symptoms, while in the latter there is only a remission. Treatment. The treatment should consist in the employment of those remedial agents advised in intermittent fever. The golden medical discovery and quinine being taken during the remission of symptoms. During the height of the fever, tincture of aconite may be given and an alkaline sponge bath administered with advantage. As an intermittent fever, should the course of treatment here advised not promptly arrest the disease, the family physician should be summoned. Congestive fever, pernicious fever. This is the most severe and dangerous form of malarial fever. It may be either intermittent or remittent in character. In some instances the first paroxysm is so violent as to destroy life in a few hours, while in others it comes on insidiously. The first one or two paroxysms being comparatively mild, it is frequently characterized by stupor, delirium, a marble-like coldness of the surface, vomiting and purging, jaundice, or hemorrhage from the nose and bowels. In America this fever is only met with in the Mississippi Valley, and in other localities where the air contains a large quantity of malarial poison. Treatment. This fever is so dangerous that a physician should be summoned as soon as the disease is recognized. For the benefit of those who are unable to obtain medical attendance, we will say that the treatment should be much the same as an intermittent fever, but more energetic. Quinine should be taken in doses of from 5 to 15 grains every 2 or 3 hours. If it be not retained by the stomach, the following mixture may be administered by injection, sulfate of quinine, one half dram, sulfuric acid, five drops, water, one ounce, dissolve, and then add two ounces of starch water. Continued fevers. The symptoms of these fevers do not intermit and remit, but continue without any marked variation for a certain period. They are usually characterized by great prostration of the system and are called putrid when they manifest septic changes in the fluids, and malignant when they speedily run to a fatal termination. Typhoid and typhus fevers belong to this class. We shall not advise treatment for these more grave disorders which should always, for the safety of the patient, be attended by the family physician, except to recommend some simple means which may be employed in the initial stage of the disease, or when a physician's services cannot be promptly secured. Typhoid fever enteric fever. In typhoid fever there is ulceration of the intestines and mesenteric glands. This diseased condition of the bowels distinguishes this fever from all others, and is readily detected by sensitiveness to pressure, especially over the lower part of the abdomen on the right side. The early disposition to diarrhea is another characteristic symptom of it, and there is also no intermission of symptoms as an intermittent fever. The disease comes on insidiously, with loss of appetite, headache, chilliness, and languor. It is usually a week or more before the disease becomes fully developed. Cause. Typhoid fever is a specific form of fever developed from the action of a specific germ upon a susceptible system. The poison of typhoid fever is eliminated mainly through the bowels. The germs of typhoid can maintain life for months in water, and thus it happens that ponds, lakes, rivers and streams which receive sewage can spread the germs of typhoid fever, while water often swarms with these poisonous germs. In some cases it has been found that privies, though 20 or 40 feet away from a well, have yet drained into it through a clay soil covered with gravel and carried the germs to those drinking the water from the well. Next to water, milk is the most prominent carrier of contagion. Milk is apt to get infected with the germs if cooled in tanks of water which may receive drainage from outhouses and barns. Treatment. Scientific support has been given the treatment by cold tub at 70 degrees Fahrenheit and it is advised by many physicians.
Experience has proved that sponge baths and tub baths are of the utmost importance. When the temperature of the patient is at or above 102.5 degrees Fahrenheit, every 3 hours the tub bath is given for 20 minutes at 70 degrees Fahrenheit. These may be tepid at first. Gradually cooling to 70 degrees frictions are applied to patient in the bath, and he is wrapped in blankets when taken out to avoid danger of chill, and then given a warm drink or stimulant. Treatment should be directed by an experienced physician to suit the symptoms. The evacuations from the bowels should be thoroughly disinfected with chloride of lime or carbolic acid, that they may not convey the disease to others. All the sewerage and drain pipes in the house should likewise be disinfected. Scarlet Fever This fever takes its name from the scarlet color of the eruption on the surface of the body. Sometimes it is comparatively mild, and is then called scarletina simplex, when it is accompanied by a sore throat. It is termed scarletina anginosa, and when the disease is of a low, putrid type, it is called scarletina maligna. This disease has three distinct stages, 1. The stage of invasion, 2. The stage of eruption, and 3. The stage of gasquamathion. In the first stage there is pain in the head, increased heat of the skin, redness and soreness of the throat, and sometimes nosebleed, diarrhea, or vomiting. The average duration of this stage is 24 hours. The eruptive stage generally begins on the second day, though sometimes it is delayed longer, and the scarlet rash rapidly diffuses itself over the whole body. The redness is vivid and has been compared to the appearance of a boiled lobster. The stage of eruption reaches its maximum of intensity on the third day, and it is important that it does not recede. Redness of the tonsils and throat is one of the early symptoms which precedes any cutaneous eruption. The tongue also is finely spotted with numerous red points which mark its pupillae, presenting an appearance which has been compared to that of a strawberry. The thirst is urgent. There is no appetite, and vomiting and mild delirium are common. The stage continues from four to six days, and sometimes longer. Desquamathion scaling off of the skin commences at the decline of the eruption, in the form of minute, branny scales. The duration of the stage is indefinite and may end in 5 or 6 or may continue 10 or 12 days. If the inflammation in the throat is very severe, it may terminate in an abscess, which may also occur in the glands of the neck, and sometimes the inflammation extends to the lips, cheeks, and eyelids. Gangrene within the throat occurs in rare instances. The disease is easily communicated, and usually develops into 2-5 days after exposure. It occurs most frequently in the 3rd and 4th years of life. There is no other disease so simple, and yet so often liable to prove fatal, as scarlet fever, and for this reason we shall advise the attendance of the famil.